And everybody, hope you're well. Uh, hope you've enjoyed your fellowship and your meal. I'm going to pray for us, pray for our food, uh, and then we'll get started. Dear Lord, we thank you very much for today. Thank you for this meal you have blessed us with. Thank you for this time with friends and fellowshipping with fellow believers, Lord, fellow um, We just thank you for uh, this time that you have called us here. Would you be with us now as we study your word? Would you teach us? Would you reveal truth to our heart? Would you rebuke us? Would you train us? And ultimately, would you glorify your son, Jesus Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the book of Ruth. Uh, If you know uh, much about the book of Ruth, you know it is a uh, very unique story, uh, but one I think that shows us so much about the providence of God. We think oftentimes in big picture. We talk about covenant theology and uh, the big promises and covenants from God, and, and those are wonderful things to study. But then it's also nice sometimes to kind of zero in on someone's life, and the, there is just as much theology in the study of one person's life as you can find in a book that's all about theology, such as Romans. The book of Ruth is no different. It's about God's care, God's concern on the life of a little girl, (laughs) this little pagan girl from Moab. God is very concerned about her, and it gives us confidence. It should be of great encouragement to us that he cares about your life. Many of us probably think of our lives as just common and ordinary and maybe a little bit boring. God cares about that. He's concerned about the details. He's concerned about your decisions. He's concerned that you submit yourself to his will and his word. He is very concerned about you and the decisions that you make in everyday life. This is a bit of an overview. Uh, We're going to look at the first five verses of the book. But I'm trying to set a theme for this book as we study it over the next few weeks. That theme being, as I mentioned, God's divine providence over our lives and in particular in the life of Ruth. So let me read for us Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They were in... They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Lord, again, would you open our hearts and minds to your word? Would you reveal the truth to us? Lord, we thank you for calling us here today. Thank you for blessing us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. When we look back over history, we often just consider and study the heroes of history or the major players, the, the, the big names, if you will. You study an event such as World War II, all of us probably knows a good deal of information about Adolf Hitler or Patton or Eisenhower or Churchill or Stalin the heroes, or at least the major players in these different, uh, in these conflicts, or this war specifically. 
We forget about the millions of others who had a great impact in this, the, the corporals and the privates and the sergeants of these armies that they have a story to tell as well, but often we don't hear those. And so it, it's why, if you've ever seen the HBO miniseries from years ago, The Band of Brothers, it, it zeroes in on, these com- on the common lives of these conflicts. Yes, you hear about the major players or the heroes of the war, but you, you study the lives and you understand the events of these ordinary soldiers, and it's very compelling. <laughs> if you've never seen it, very entertaining. There's millions of others who fought and died in these wars that we just don't know about them, but we love to hear stories, so we're interested in, in, in a miniseries such as that. When I was in seminary, uh, I was an intern at the church uh, uh, at the church that we attended, but I also took care of the cemetery at the church. Kind of an odd job, especially for a seminary student, but the church we attended had a cemetery that was connected with it. Somebody needed to cut the grass and take care of the flowers, and, and that's what I did. And I got to tell you, I loved this job. I, I loved taking care of this cemetery, and I don't know how many hundreds of times would look at these gravestones. I would see the names of the people there. I would see, but I didn't know much about them. All I knew was the year they were born and the year they died. That's really all the information I had. But I often wondered what they were like. What wonder what this person did for a living. Were they a Christian? What kind of life did they lead? I was always curious. What was their story? Don't know anything about them other than just the general facts. As I mentioned, it's important for us to know the grand story of Scripture, the meta-narrative, if you will. We need to know what God's up to, his, his plan of redemption. But it's also very beneficial to study the individual lives. As the writer of Hebrews, I think, is exhorting us to do in Hebrews chapter 11 when he mentions all these great cloud of witnesses, the different heroes of the faith that are mentioned. We need to go back. Why are they considered that? What about their life pointed to such a life of faith? <clears throat> these stories, Ruth is included, is a part of this cloud of witnesses, this story of redemption. One of these great little stories is about, as I mentioned, a little girl, a little pagan girl from a pagan nation named Ruth. In the grand scheme of things, her life is meaningless. She is insignificant. She's not a queen. She's not the wife of a dignitary. She's not someone that we ought to turn and consider. She's just a normal person going throughout life in a very normal way, just like you and me. I heard a pastor give a heading for the book of Ruth that I thought was just spot on. He called it a common life under a common grace. Ruth's life is as common as it can get. Yeah, there are lots of twists and turns, and we'll study those, but it's an uncommon grace that was given to her very common life. It's, as she walked along her life, wow, this is what luck to wander into Boaz's field and be able to glean from, uh, uh, from the harvest. It was hardly luck, wasn't it? It was the divine hand of God steering her, caring for her, providing for her. You've probably said a lot of the same things. What luck, what great chance that this or that happened in my life. Well, it was hardly chance. It was hardly luck. It was God steering, directing, guiding, caring for you. Ruth's story is a story of gospel or divine providence. <laughs> you know, we're very quickly to attribute the things of God only to the good stuff, to the good things that happen. It's, it's great that I got that raise or that I found that job or that 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 relationship turned out the way that it did. We use that language all the time for God's providence, but we never use it for bad things or for trials. 
Really, this is a reflection of the times that we live in. Our culture has robbed us of the doctrine of providence, I think. We just don't mention this in everyday life. So this story is not so much about Ruth, but the hand of God in the life of what seems to be an ordinary person. God cares for her, and it's to show us that he cares deeply for you too, even the very small decisions that you make on a daily basis. All seems to be lost in this story. These first five verses are not going to leave us encouraged. (laughs) Wow, this is great. This story looks like it's going to turn out well. It doesn't. Naomi, the Ruth's mother-in-law, is someone who is most certainly to be pitied. She loses her husband, we see in these first few verses, and then she's going to lose her children not long after that. But the hand of providence is over her life. Maybe you've felt like Naomi before. I have nothing. My life seems to be heading towards nothing. I am hopeless. I'm saddened by how my life has turned out. But this story is telling us the hand of providence is still caring for you. Everything seems dark. Nothing could possibly happen positive. But God is still there. You're stressed. You're fearful. He's going to take care of you if you are his child, if you are trying to walk with him by faith. Because providence tells us that God is there and he is going to provide for you. And every person that is his is very precious to him, no matter how ordinary and insignificant you may feel. So the book of Judges that comes right before Ruth, it ends in Judges 21-25, and it ends this way. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's dive into the book here. As Judges ends, this is really a vicious cycle that you see throughout all of Judges. God sends a judge, they kind of right the ship a little bit, they start behaving the way they're supposed to and following the law of God, and then they start not, (laughs) and they fall into this, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and then things get really bad. And then God's gracious to them and sends them another judge, and things start getting better again, and around and around we go. This is a story in the midst of the time of the judges. What was everybody doing? Was it all apostasy and turning away from God? No, we have one such example where it's not. But the book of Judges shows the chaos and the anarchy of Israel at this time. No righteous authority rules. Everyone is just doing whatever they want to. There's unrest, upheaval, so forth. And so the book of Ruth zeroes in on one family, as it mentions in chapter 1, verse 1. So verse 1, it says that there is a famine in the land. A famine in biblical times was completely devastating. Not much worse could happen than a famine coming. You see it in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. It's, it's also mentioned in the life of Jacob in Genesis 42 and, and following. And often a famine was a sign of God's displeasure, which we can assume is what's happening here in Judges. There would have absolutely been a great reason for God to be very displeased with his people. All around, people are turning from God, trusting in themselves, not trusting in him. And so the book of Ruth gives us one particular family's response to that famine. There's a famine, there's upheaval, there's apostasy. What's Israel going to do about it? Well, here's one such example. Here's a a case study, if you will, on what they do in response to this famine. So a man named Elimelech takes his family and they move. Their response is, let's get out of town. We need to go someplace where we can have some food. I learned in my study, I thought this was interesting, there's some bitter irony here. 
is we've we've spoke we've talked about before that words meant so much more to them than they do to us, and we'll even see that with the names of the of the of the players in this story in a minute. But Bethlehem means the house of bread or the house of food. There's a famine in the house of food. That's just kind of ironic there. Elimelech takes his family from the land of promise, from the house of bread, because of this famine, to sojourn in another land. To sojourn at this time meant that a person would live as an alien in a foreign land. It describes social standing of someone in a foreign country. You don't have rights. There's no privileges of citizenship. The sojourner would not have owned land and probably would have put his family in some place of servitude somehow. This is a little hard for us to understand. We, we get a little idea of it. If you were to move to another country and not be a citizen, you wouldn't have some rights of a citizen of that country. But it was more to it. They weren't cl- quite slaves, but they were really close to it. You just didn't have any rights. <laughs> You're moving to this new land, and it wasn't like us. We moved to a new state or we relocate. It was everything was different. Not to mention the fact that in Moab they weren't going to worship the God, the God of Israel. They were going to have pagan gods. So Elimelech, to him, for economic, for economic reasons to take care of my family, I'm going to go there anyway despite the other things that may change. So they moved to Moab in verse 2. Now the Moabites were descendants of Lot. Moab who the people were named after, was born as a result of incest between Lot and one of his daughters. We read in Genesis chapter 19. And they lived on the east side of the Jordan River, and during the time of the judges, the Israelites and the Moabites were huge rivals. They hated each other. They arch enemies, if you will. It's a, it's a Georgia fan moving to Gainesville, Florida and living. I mean, it's, it just these people didn't like each other, okay? On the one hand, Elimelech's trying to benefit his family, but I don't think he realizes at what expense that he's going to do this. Again, names in the Old Testament are very important. It's an integral part of the story. You and me, not that you didn't put thought in naming your children, but it often was not a testimony of what you thought they would become. It was just the tag that you added to them. That's what you call them. In the Old Testament, it was not so. It was what you, the values that you hoped that they would have. It was a, a proclamation on what kind of person you wanted them to be. They, it meant so much more, is my point. Elimelech, the patriarch of the family, means my God is king. Well, that certainly not seems to be the decisions he's making, right? He's saying, I am king. <clears throat> he's doing what is right in his own eyes by fleeing the promised land. Naomi, her name means sweet, pleasant, or delightful. We'll look later in chapter 1. She's going to change her name to mean bitter because of what the Lord has done to her. By the end of verse 2, as I mentioned, the family has moved to Moab. They're sojourning in a foreign land. And in verse 3, we see how just how pagan it is. Uh, well, not in verse 3. Just the, this, this, whole, this whole move was more than just a relocation. Uh, it was a change of everything. Hard to imagine this does not have a great impact on them. Tragedy strikes. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, the patriarch of the family, he dies. So Naomi is now a widow. That's okay. She still has two sons to take care of her. Psychological studies will tell us that the loss of a spouse is the second most difficult traumatic event that a person can face. The first is something that she will experience in just a couple of verses. The loss of a child. In fact, the loss of both children. 
But it's here I want us to pause and consider what I mentioned at the very first, the providence of God. Things aren't going so well for Naomi at this point. We want to cry foul. We want to cry, this isn't fair. We want to ask, why, why, why? Why does God allow this to happen to her? Why does he allow any number of things to happen in my own life? It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to wrap our minds around the reasons, the purposes that God allows things to happen. Think of your greatest joys and successes. Think of your deepest sorrows and regrets and pain. The Bible is clear. Both of these are directed by the hand of God. If one of God's people is enduring hardship, it's because it fits into God's overall plan and purpose for that person's life. Perhaps I'm putting this in insensitive terms, but I don't mean it that way. I mean to say that there aren't accidents, there's not, there's not chaos and random chance that's active in our world today, that it is if we attribute bad to that and we attribute only the good things to God working and being providential in this life. It's got to be all of it. Romans 8, chapter 28, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's not that all things are good. All things work together for good. Whatever happens is due to the providence of God. Obviously, much more could be said about this. We could do a 10-week study on the sovereignty and providence of God. But God uses people. And God uses events to glorify himself no matter what they might be. Consider a few people's life. <laughs> Consider the life of David. David is a man after God's own heart, whom God loves dearly. David committed adultery and then murdered the husband of the, of the woman that he had committed adultery. Was he forgiven? Was he redeemed from all that? Of course he was. Was David's life a complete wreck from that point forward? Yes, it was. He had to endure the consequences of the sinful mistakes that he had made. But he was still saved from them. He was still forgiven. God's plan was carried out in his life despite the horrible, really the horrible life that he lived from that point forward. Consider the life of Joseph. Joseph didn't want to be the privileged son of his father Jacob. He didn't want to be put into slavery. He didn't want his brothers to hate him. But look at all the things that brought him along that eventually would show kindness back to Jacob's family because of where Joseph had been put. God employs frail and weak people to carry out his great plan and proclaim his truth just as he does with you and for me. And this is what happens in the book of Ruth. Elimelech's choice to move his family to Moab because of the famine was wrong. It was against God's will. But God redeemed that, did he not? He did that in order to we can assume, pull Ruth into the plan of God. How else would she have been included in this? He should have just stayed and trusted God, remained in the land of inheritance. We also see in verse 4 that his sons marry Moabite women, which was a no-no. You're not supposed to marry, intermarry with pagan people. But despite this, God redeems the sinful activities. How many times has God redeemed something sinful? You have done, you have said... Yes, there might have been consequences, but he redeemed that. He, he brought forgiveness and reconciliation. He taught great gospel lessons to you and perhaps the ones that you hurt. He's in the business of doing such things. Despite this, God took sinful activities and redeemed them, as I mentioned. The sons marry two women, Orpah, which means stiff-necked, 
which we will see her be very stiff-necked later in this chapter, and Ruth, which means friendship or companionship, which is very indicative of her life as well. So Elimelech is gone. The family undoubtedly feels his lack of leadership. They're now established in Moab. What must have happened during this time? Acculturation, assimilation, syncretism to their religions, or at least that was a constant threat. And now Naomi loses her sons. This is horrible, but it's probably worse than you realize. (laughs) She's a widow, and she now has no husband, of course, and now no sons to care for her. The Moabites, who she lived amongst, would have no sense of responsibility to her whatsoever because she's a sojourner. She's a foreigner. She would have had very few, if any, rights, no protections, and a culture that did not care for her, not to mention the fact that she's grieving and mourning over the loss of her family. She's facing destitution, poverty, possibly becoming a slave. Maybe she could marry a Moabite man, but it's unlikely based on her age. She is helpless. She is to be pitied. It's hard not to feel bad for Naomi. But you know the rest of the story, right? It's God redeeming relationships, redeeming things for his glory, just as he does with all of us. We could all stand up and share similar stories. At this point, all looks lost. Maybe you're in the midst of a situation, not like this, but I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know how he's going to make this better. I don't know how he's going to redeem it. We could be like the children of Israel, which every time they faced something like that, they grumbled, they griped, they complained, they, they shouted at Moses and threatened to kill him. Or we could do what Moses does and fall down on our knees and pray, Lord, redeem this. Show me what you want for me. How can I submit myself to you? Give me patience, because this is probably going to take longer than I want it to. Lord, show yourself mighty in this again. In the middle of the 18th century in America, there was a young man who attended Yale's Divinity School. It was his desire to be trained for the pastoral ministry and to be a pastor. He was an excellent student and getting very near the end of his degree. However, one day an unfortunate event occurred. He was sitting around with some friends, and they were talking about professors, as students often do. And he made an unguarded remark. He said, that, that professor of ours is about as spiritual as the chair I'm sitting in. Not something he should have said. It was found out by the faculty that he had said that, and he was expelled from Yale's Divinity School. He went to the professor, asked for forgiveness, repented of the things that he'd said, The forgiveness was accepted, but he was not readmitted into the school. Thus began what was perhaps the lowest, most depressing, most discouraging time in the life of David Brainerd. Scriptures call us to understand that God uses even our most despicable acts to bring about his good pleasure. And so God worked his good pleasure in the life of David Brainerd after expulsion from Yale. He agonized over his calling. Lord, am I even supposed to be here? Are you telling me I'm not fit for the ministry? And he agonized over this. But God opened up a service for him on the mission field to the Indians. That had not been Brainerd's desire. That had not been his plan when he went to seminary. But the Lord opened up that door for him. God blessed his ministry with great revivals amongst the Indians for years. God can even use the sin of man to bring about his purposes to this world. He is simply sovereign, and nothing that happens in heaven or on earth are apart from his decrees. 
R.C. Sproul has an illustration I don't know that I've shared with you before, but he, he calls it a maverick molecule. He said, even if there, if there is one molecule out there floating around in the universe somewhere that God is not divinely in control of, just one molecule, then he's no longer sovereign and therefore no longer God. That he has a care and concern for every single molecule. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's something smaller, an atom maybe. Maybe there's something smaller than that. Every single molecule he is concerned about, he has control over. And that's good for us. Because <laughs> we can't screw it up. I can't, I can't do something that God is going to look back and say, well, I sure wasn't expecting Andy to do that. Now I'm going to have to change everything. It's, he knew it was going to happen. He knows what's coming. And he's concerned for you. He's concerned about your life. He's concerned about your decisions. What has the wonderful and divine sovereign hand of God done for you? Have you seen it? Have you thought about someone's life like the life of Joseph, as I mentioned before? He didn't know he'd be the privileged son of Jacob. He didn't know the coat of many colors. He didn't know that was going to make his brother so upset with him. He didn't want to be sold into slavery. He didn't know that Potiphar's wife was going to lie about what he had done to her and be thrown into jail. He providentially, of course, the cupbearer befriends him and finally tells Pharaoh of all the wonderful things that he had done in interpreting dreams. He gets exalted into second in command over all of Egypt. He's there on the seven years of plenty, and he was in charge of storing all the food, and then the seven years of, of famine where he distributes it all, all in need, and then it comes full circle. The very brothers that had hated him, had scorned him, had sold him into slavery, into certain death, now come back to Joseph we need some food. That's a redeeming of a situation for sure. The ones that hated him, God graciously, graciously and by his providence provides for them. Here's food from the very person that you hated and scorned. You would think that the Jews, the Jews thought that they had fixed the problem and they put Jesus Christ on that cross. He's not going to be a problem anymore. He... The problems dealt with because we put him up on the cross. Little did they know this was all a part of the plan. He was supposed to go there all along. He was supposed to die for our sins. Don't miss the hand of providence. It's easy to see in those big, great stories, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I understand what you're talking about. But it's happening every single day in your life, in the little mundane and the little ordinary things of your life. He cares about that. He cares for you. Walk according to his word. Thank him for the little victories. Thank him for the little things, the little blessings that often go unconsidered. I look forward to continuing on in Ruth this month. We see more and more about the divine hand of God. And I leave you with just considering those things. Considering, don't miss those ways that the Lord is providing for you, providing for you each and every day. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that, you that you love us so well. Despite our sinfulness, despite our lack of gratitude towards you, you continue on because we are yours. Thank you for holding us close. Lord, that we would count our many blessings, that we would name them one by one, that we would never forget what you have done for us, and that you are intimately concerned with our lives. Lord, would you be with us now as we go back to work? Would you... Um, have blessed, would you bless this time that we have had now? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.
Have a good day.